Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Today, Lucy and myself are interviewing the very lovely Emma Newman, a woman whose style and beautiful coats I can only dream of copying. Hello, Emma. Hello. <laughs> Please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your books and what made you decide to write in the first place. Uh, so I'm a, an author and audiobook narrator. And um, also in my dissolute youth, I was a designer dressmaker, hence the coats that um, you like. And uh, the books I write um, are urban fantasy. I have an urban fantasy series uh, called the Split World series. And I also have science fiction novels uh, that are being published. Uh, the first one was last year, which is called Planetfall. And there's one that's about to come out in November called After Atlas. And they're set in the same universe, but they're both standalone novels. One isn't necessarily the, the sequel to the other. Um, and as for what made me write in the first place, um, I just always was. It's like my grandmother's favourite story about me that I was writing stories at the age of four. And they were rubbish. And then I wrote loads of rubbish for many, 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 many years. And lots of Star Trek next gen fanfic. And then I wrote a story, uh, a time travel short story for my English coursework at A-level. And um, that kind of got me my place at university. Um, and then I didn't write for 10 years uh, because I I guess I had my first kind of bit of measurable success from my writing and it scared me so much that I didn't write. And then in my late 20s, uh, my late best friend sent me a really great book called The Artist's Way and said, didn't you used to write on the, the note inside? And um, I got through the block and uh, never looked back. Excellent. Now, um, you and I were on a panel together uh, a little while back at FantasyCon, and we were talking about your Split Worlds books, which were obviously um, sort of fairy tales set in the modern world. And one of the things I remember commenting on was that I was really impressed by the way you managed to bring fairies into the modern world and integrate them, and yet still kind of keep that magic. Yet, despite the way they, they fit in, you also still sort of have a Georgian society and Georgian values. So do you find that these two worlds come into conflict when you're planning your stories? I think that the conflict between those worlds is kind of at the centre of the stories. Um, so it, they don't come into conflict in terms of me having to like scratch my head and go, oh God, how am I going to make this work when I'm <laughs> planning the books? There is a lot of that that goes on, believe me, but it's not because of the two different worlds. Um, it's uh, So yeah, it, it's a kind of a, a juxtaposition, which I was definitely aiming for, that the, the real modern day world exists alongside this um, closeted away, um, stagnant, horrendous awful um society in what's called the nether um so yeah it was a kind of compare and contrast exercise um and having both of them at the same time was really critical because i had a character that moved between the two um and later on several of them moved between the two worlds and um there's quite a lot you can explore um by having that as a conceit Excellent. I mean, you talk about the Nether, which for those who haven't read the Split Worlds book, and I strongly recommend that you do, is obviously where the fairies live, um, which is sort of, it's kind of like a, a plane, isn't it? So is that how you would describe it? You've got humans yeah. on one side and then sort of almost existing in the same space, but a little bit out of reality are the fairies. Yes, and there's also Exilium. So there's the real world, which is Mundanus, and there's the pure Fae-only prison, which is Exilium, where the lords and ladies of the Fae actually live. Um, and then between the two, there is the Nether. So yes, you're right, they're kind of like dimensional planes. Mm. Um, and so in terms of the Nether and um, Mundanus, they exist in the, the same space, but kind of just slightly out of phase with each other. So you can walk literally between the two and people live in houses which are anchored. So you have a house that exists in Mundanus and there are magical anchors in place to make it appear in the Nether. They call it reflecting it into the Nether. So there is a very close connection between those two planes of existence, whereas Exilium is, is totally separate because it's a prison. Now, I really love that idea that you did of sort of having the, the anchor properties that you can go in and out of and you can access one to the other. Uh, I mean, that, that was just fantastic. And in the nether, obviously, your fairies have a very uh, patriarchal society so that your thoroughly modern heroine finds it virtually intolerable to be a part of it. And I mean, obviously, part of the uh, storyline within your novels is her trying to escape it. Um, mm. But I mean, what prompted you to give the men in the netherworld such influence and power over women? There was there were a number of different factors. One of them was um, a purely world building um, piece of logic of okay, I know when this nether world was created, 
and the people who live there stayed there and nothing changes. There are no external social pressures like the First World War or, you know, of course, um, yes. the, the suffrage movement and um, <laughs> uh, the Great Crash and the Great Depression and all of these various different factors that uh, influenced social change and in particular rights for women um, have not happened there. So it was it was a logic of, well, yes, of course, it would still be like this, because what would actively make them change? Because when people hold power, they keep power. And um, so that was one aspect. The other was that I wanted to explore um, a feminist plotline. But when I started writing the books, I didn't sit down and, and go, today I'm going to write a feminist story. It, it wasn't that conscious, um, but it rapidly emerged as one of the prominent themes of the story. Um, what I was focusing on uh, and still focused on, and I literally yesterday finished the first draft of the last book in the series, book five, it's an exploration of freedom and lack thereof and the different ways that people are uh, constrained uh, by society at, at various levels um, and how toxic the patriarchy is for men and women and uh, how you can destroy each other. And so, uh, yeah, the the whole thing about the very heavily patriarchal society, even though it was a logical extrapolation, um, I also uh, wanted to kind of have the struggles that women have writ large. Uh, it's very easy for me to kind of sit in my very privileged position as a white woman living in 21st century Britain to think, hey, things are great now, because in some ways, in some ways they are, and in other ways they are still really awful. Can I swear on this podcast? Of course you can, go right ahead. Yeah, they're really irretrievably shit <laughs> in many respects, um, both beneath the surface and also depending on who you are and where you live in the world, the colour of your skin, your socioeconomic status, all of these different variables conspire to make life as a woman irretrievably shit still now in the 21st century and so it was my way of kind of almost dialing back the clock in terms of British society to say look this is how far we've come but also hey people we haven't really sorted all of this out have we and look at how much we have to lose and that the you know the the constant struggle to hold on to what we have hard won um, in terms of rights for women uh, is is something which is a thread throughout the books. No, absolutely. And I mean, right from the beginning, like you were saying about the patriarchal society being um, toxic to men, that certainly comes through in your, your earlier novels, you know, right at the very beginning. Um, but I must admit, I do like the idea of a fairy suffragette um, story. I think that would be a definite winner. Uh, but that does come in later in the series. Excellent. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, there are lots and lots of different things, but the the two principal characters, Kathy and Will, hmm. are the two sides of the same coin. You know, they are both people who are being uh, controlled by their society. Will ostensibly has more power as a man, but it's over the books an exploration of well, do you really? Do hmm. you really have power when you're just part of that system? And also, from my reading of your books, they, they do both try and fight back, but in very different ways. Um, yes. So Will tries to fight back by being a good husband, by being kind. But of course, uh, Kathy fights back by sort of more proactively trying to, to get herself the hell out of there um, and things like that. So, I mean, yeah, and that was, that was something that I was really keen to uh, explore with Kathy as well, is that I wanted to, to have a character who really screws it up all the time. <laughs> she's she's not she's not a good feminist in some ways in the beginning of the book she's very selfish um she doesn't try to lift other women up she is just obsessed with her own freedom and righteously furious with her entire situation and the people around her but she is not empathic and she is not sympathetic and that's one of the the kind of the developmental arcs that i wanted to explore with her over the series that um, you know, you can say, yes, she's the heroine in the first book, but she she's really crap in some respects. She's really awesome as well, but she um, has a lot of learning to do. And one of the things that I wanted to reflect through her is also this this time in your life when you're a woman and you kind of wake up. I don't know if this is something that, you know, other people have experienced 
um, in the same way. I can only speak from my own experience, but th th there was definitely a point where it was suddenly like the scales fell from my eyes and it was like, actually, no, oh my God, this is really shit. How can we have another film where this shit is still happening? Why is this woman being sexually harassed and smiling back at the male character? What? <laughs> Why is this happening? And that's when you start to try and find other people and you know you discover the global movement and that global conversation that has been happening for decades it's really intimidating and you can screw up and you don't know the right words to use and you don't have the right strategies in place and you have to kind of catch up and go through your own awakening and that's kind of the other thing I wanted to explore in the books. Excellent. Now, obviously, writing isn't your only talent, because as you said earlier, you're also an audiobook narrator. Uh, so tell us how you got into that and how you find that it either helps or hinders your writing. Uh, by accident, is um, <laughs> the easy answer there. Yeah, uh, so way back when um, I didn't have a book deal and I was still flailing around very much as a baby writer, I just finished my first novel, uh, which looking back on now, I realised was really, really crap. But I was so thrilled and so excited that I'd finished my first novel. I was trying to get it published. And I was in the situation where I was getting rejection after rejection. And that, that kind of madness of, but I don't know if it's any good. I don't know if it's just not at the right place at the right time or if it's just no good because you don't get any feedback. No. And so what I decided I wanted to do was um, not publish it online because I didn't want to have it, you know, first published online you know I don't want to lose those rights um, but um, so what I did was recorded just every week I recorded a chapter of the book and said to people hey if you want to listen to the chapters of this book and let me know what you think and uh, the feedback was really great but the unsurprising the the most surprising that's totally done the most surprising aspect um, of the exercise was that people fed back on my voice and my narration and I'd always hated my voice like all of my life. And I hated having to hear it when I was editing the material. And yet there were people saying that they really enjoyed it. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do this. I do enjoy doing it. So I auditioned for a audiobook company that um, had open auditions for people who could record audiobooks at home. And I auditioned and got the first book I auditioned for. And then it was a vertical learning curve. It was yeah wow <laughs> really hard work um and it's one of those things that you know when when you think of like reading a book it's like well that's really easy isn't it you just sit and read a book and there is so much more involved there's so much more involved in in terms of um how you deliver the book how you read it how you perform um and moving from recording books at home to recording with an audiobook company in a studio which i do now um again was another very steep learning curve uh, because when you're in the booth, when you're recording, you wear headphones where your voice is pumped through the headphones you're wearing. So you hear your own voice at exactly the same time through the headphones. And so when you're reading the manuscript, your brain is kind of divided in terms of input and output processing where you're reading the line you're reading. You're obviously acting the dialogue or whatever. Also reading a line ahead so that you can get the intonation right. Hmm. But then at the same time, processing what you've just heard through your headphones, thinking, is that right? Did that sound good? <laughs> Was that on point? And so at the end of a six-hour session, you are, I mean, I'm just a dish rag. I'm just absolutely spent. It's uh, very, very hard work. And learning how to uh, modulate your voice correctly and how to uh, not strain it so that you can record for hours and hours and hours and hours, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I love it. It's like um, it's like climbing inside a book because you you really um, you get into the book to a depth that you well, that I just don't as a as a reader. Um, I think it's probably because I read fast. But when you're narrating a book, every single word, every single line is being processed deeply and it, it's um, hugely satisfying. Absolutely. And instead of just reading that somebody, you know, said something sarcastically, you have to say it sarcastically. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really enjoyable in terms of acting. So I used to do amateur dramatics years and years and years and years ago, which I really enjoyed. And I'm a role player as well. So I really, really enjoy uh, how to convey 
emotion and how to convey character and doing different ca- character voices and accents as well sometimes that can be so challenging <laughs> um you know you you have this moment of dread when you you get the manuscript through and you read it and you look at the cast list and it's like oh no I don't know how to do that accent so then you just learn how to do that accent <laughs> over you know the couple of weeks before you're in the studio and that can be quite stressful but mm. also challenging and fun Oh, obviously, we were talking a bit earlier about uh, your heroine, Kathy, um, and I have to say, I'm quite relieved that you described her as a bit of a bitch to begin with, because I did start off your books and go, dear Lord, I want to slap this girl. <laughs> but thinking about yeah. other female characters sort of in wider literature, are there any that you particularly admire and wish that, you know, you had written? Uh, you know, I really struggled with this question. Um, and I was thinking, God, is this is this the same thing that we see again and again and again that you know what characters do people think of oh they think of the men but then I realized with relief that there are actually very few characters that came to mind because my brain just doesn't work this way I consume stuff and I move on but then when I really really thought about it there were two that came to mind one is Kathy's namesake in uh, Wuthering Heights I wondered if that would be one of them <laughs> yeah because uh she's really annoying and um really horrible um but also quite endearing in her own way but complex and Mm. uh, I've always had a deep love of that book because it I think it's kind of a masterclass in how to handle melodrama um, in terms of it being told kind of second and sometimes third hand through the guy who's moved to the house and then through the housekeeper relating the story to the guy who moved in the house (laughs) so many times removed from these ridiculous people doing ridiculous things, screaming at each other and tearing each other apart. And it just kind of works better, I think, than if it had been like a close third-person POV. Can you imagine? Or a close first-person POV in Kathy's head in Wuthering Heights. That You'd never have be, believed it, would you? No. <laughs> it would just be far too much. So, yeah, that's one of them. The other um, character that I, I deeply, deeply adore is Emily Marshwick from Guns of the Dawn, um, written by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Um, and I really, really loved her. I thought she was an amazing character. Um, so yeah, those those are my my two female characters. Good ones, very good choices. <laughs> Lucy, shall I hand over to you? Hi, Emma. Oh, <laughs> I've been quiet, sitting here, <laughs> listening, and it's all been really interesting. And now I feel absolutely terrible that I've not read Split Worlds, and it's going to go to the top of my to be read pile because it sounds amazing. <laughs> um. Basically, wanted to ask you about the difference between writing fantasy and science fiction because you're actually one of those rare people that the rare writers that kind of cross um, cross that boundary. I know, uh, speaking for myself, that I would very, really struggle to write science fiction. I feel like I don't have any particular um, rapport with it as a genre. Um, but you know, do you do anything differently when preparing to write uh, in either genre, or or do you find that it comes that you know the the genre is a result of the story you wish to tell? That's a really interesting question, and it's it's going to be a kind of a complex and rambling answer. So I apologise in advance. Um, so in terms of the the urban fantasy and the science fiction I write, they're actually very different in terms of POV structure. So at a kind of writing technical level they are very different in the in the split worlds it's a massive 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 story i think of it as epic urban fantasy because there are multiple factions that are in conflict with each other we have multiple povs different worlds and you know interacting things the only thing it doesn't have in terms of the epic label are armies marching and fighting um, each other so that in terms of planning and um, structuring is a very 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 different experience to my science fiction because my science fiction is close first person POV and so the structure of the novel is totally different where the tension is brought in is very different um, and also the uh, the emotional closeness of the characters in the science fiction novels is very different to that of um, the split worlds so in terms of like my brain, they are in completely different boxes, not because of the genre, but because of the style um, that I write in when I write those two different things. And that wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. It was just that um, I'd been writing the split worlds for two years at the time. I just finished the third book and I, I needed a break. And mentally, 
um, I wanted to write something that wasn't as broad in scope and as epic in scope. I wanted to write something that was much tighter to a particular character. Um, and Planetfall, I kind of see as, as a character study in many ways, um, because it is so, it's such an in-depth exploration of the protagonist. So from that perspective, there those are the differences. But in terms of things like world building, no difference whatsoever. In terms of research, no difference whatsoever. I research things for both. I just research different things. So for Planetfall, I researched synthetic biology and genetics and um, what kind of issues the body would face in going into a completely different environment and, and things like that because they, they are a colony on a distant planet. Um, so that kind of thing um, I researched for that book, whereas for the Split Worlds I researched a lot of history stuff and um, a lot of location details and architecture and um, the history of particular places in cities. And uh, a lot of this stuff doesn't even kind of come up in the books, but in my mind it all fits together, like why certain families are the way they are, where they came from, like Will's family, their roots are in France. And they were the Normans and, you know, they weren't nice people. So all of this kind of feeds into what makes that family what it is. And so I had to kind of go back and investigate all of these things and and just silly things like uh, the sorcerers in the split worlds um, are part of what they call the heptarchy, which is based on um England around 800 to 1000 AD and so I was researching where all of the borders were so that I could name the sorcerers correctly when they address each other so that pretty impressive of, research <laughs> <laughs> that, I'm a real nerd and um, so yeah they it, it's still the late the same level of research for those things like the 3d printing research for planetfall I really loved it wasn't a chore and I really loved reading all the stuff that I did for the split world so that side of thing it's not different at all and in terms of world building world building for me is um is a very very um deep process a lot of questions and answers um and something that i enjoy immensely again because of my role-playing background you know i was a gm um in that 10 years when i didn't write i did a lot of gming there was a connection i was you know <laughs> writing my stories and just kind of expressing them differently so Yes, in those respects, there are differences and similarities. When it comes to whether there is anything um, different about how to approach the, the books on an, any other level, for me, they're all character driven. So in the split worlds, there are four principal um, points of view. Um, but everything that happens in the books are all driven by the characters, what they decide to do. Um, what their motivations are, and also all of the antagonists, what they want to do, what their motivations are. And it was exactly the same in Planetfall. Even though I was only focused on one person, the entire narrative of the story is driven by a character rather than the plot. Um, and in terms of science fiction, science fiction was where my love always was. Um, I've read actually incredibly little fantasy and um, in terms of like the entire genre, I've, I've this is where we differ. I am yeah. completely the opposite. Yeah, I've I've read very very little fantasy. I read nothing but science fiction during my teenage years, and I was obsessed with science fiction. I was obsessed with science fiction in film, and it's still my favourite film genre. Even though there's a lot of dross out there, it's still my favourite film genre. And for me, it felt very odd to have my kind of first. Um, kind of proper publishing deal in urban fantasy because it was a genre I did not even know existed I wrote the books and then Lee said oh yeah that's urban fantasy and I was like oh is it oh well that sounds interesting <laughs> I hadn't really come across it before and I always wanted to write science fiction but I felt hugely intimidated by it I felt like I didn't have the knowledge to be able to write it. I felt that I wouldn't be welcome as a woman in the genre. It's incredibly male dominated. And uh, I shied away from it for a long time. But then various things clicked into place. The character of Ren, who is the protagonist in Planetfall, I knew that I wanted to have a character with her particular mental illness. And that was incubating for years. I just didn't know where to put it. And then various things clicked into place 
in terms of what kind of society would need to exist for that mental illness to be present in a science fiction story. Um, and then it all kind of fell into place and it was suddenly like, oh my God, I've got to write this and oh shit, that's going to be science fiction, isn't it? Okay, well, I, I better put my brave girl knickers on and just write that thing. And, and <laughs> it happened. You know how Lucy said that Split Worlds is going to the top of her reading list? I think Planet Falls is going to the top of mine now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, they are incredibly different. And I always, well, I was really, really nervous when Planet Fall was coming out because there are lots of people who love the Split Worlds. And I, I kept like saying at various events, you know, they're really, really different. They are so different that they're, they're not, they're not the same at all. But they, um, they are both character driven. That's the kind of the common thread between them. Um, the fact that you uh, you mentioned that you know you were kind of nervous to embark on a, a science fiction narrative because science fiction is so male dominated brings us quite smoothly to you know our next series of questions, uh, which is actually about uh, the representation of women in science fiction and fantasy. And um, we actually set up Breaking the Glass Slipper in response to what we perceive to be a lack of engagement in female writers and female oriented stories. Um, while you could say that this is slowly improving, um, do you agree that women are still underrepresented in the adult SFF arena, both as writers and characters? Yes, yes, wholeheartedly yes. My God, yes. Wow, our quickest <laughs> yeah. answer ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, massively so. Um, whether it's how many female authors are there on this table in Waterstones, oh, look, less than... 17% on average, right through to the endless lists coming out of best books of this year or best books ever. And it's like, oh, look, there's maybe, you know, out of 10, you might be lucky to get one. And then you get a standout one where it's like 50-50 and everyone's like, yay. <laughs> it's like that that picture of that woman um, at a, a rally. I can't remember where it was. It was sometime in the States that I saw a couple of years ago. And her her um, board that she was holding up was, I cannot believe that I still have to protest this shit. <laughs> and it was like, yes, <laughs> I cannot believe we are having to still have this conversation. But we are. It's. Um, I know Waterstones uh, got into trouble about two years ago uh, for having a poster up in one of their stores. It might even have been Piccadilly, you know, with 100 best science fiction and fantasy writers of the last century. And only 13 of those were women. Uh, and that yep. sparked a, a huge furore. Yeah, <laughs> rightly so. Yeah, there was, uh, there was a group of us um, who uh, actually wrote to Waterstones and were actively raising this online proactively and then I had to go and have major surgery and I had the worst 18 months of my life and I kind of dropped the ball on that one but um yeah we um we blogged about it we talked about it prominently in social media and I wrote to the head people involved um after there was a booklet which might have been uh, associated with the same campaign I'm not sure um where it was the same pathetic uh levels of um male versus female um, books and even today even today I still walk in and I do a little count when I see pictures come up online I do a little count and nothing's changed and it comes down to the individual stores there are some stores which are fantastic and they, they tend to be the people who have got um, managers or um, section managers who are really into sci-fi and fantasy and they're a lot more cl like clued up and their um, tables are much better in terms of representation but in the standard stores um, where there is nobody that cares about this passionately, it's still incredibly poor. And it's the same old women that keep coming up. And, you know, I've, I've not got anything against that, but I am seriously concerned about the fact that the next generation and current generation, like our contemporaries, are not being helped in the way and not given the same crack at the whip um, as male authors are. Um, and it, it deeply pisses me mm. off. No, I uh, obviously you probably know I work for Waterstones and um, I have noticed that they've snuck some extra female authored books into range. Uh, but but sneaking books into range is something very different from actually displaying them on a table, you know, yeah. a, a buy one, get one half price table, for example. Um, and that's simply because those uh, books are not ordered in bulk. 
Yeah. And when you order something in bulk, like, you know, all of the Game of Thrones books, like the new Abercrombies, like Peter V. Brett, like Mark Lawrence, you have so many of them that actually, in the end, stores that aren't, um, as you say, you know, they don't have a dedicated science fiction or fantasy bookseller or, or team of booksellers. Uh, they just end up being slapped on the table simply for practicality's sake, because there's so many of them and they can't all fit in range, which is a, a terrible excuse um, for, for a lack of, um, you know, uh, representation. Yeah, and it perpetuates so the cycle. Yeah, it, it, it does. It perpetuates that cycle of, oh, well, they must be the best sellers. Oh, look, they're selling more because they're in the more prominent positions. <laughs> and it's like, come on, come on. What? Why is this happening? Like, I was looking at a table that someone took a picture of and posted up like two days ago on social media. It didn't even have like Anne Leckie um, on on this range of books. And, and it's like there can be only one. There can be only one major female the writer. The token. The token writer, yeah, that that one woman who was broken through that everyone can point to and say, oh, look, there's not a problem when I know so cough, many. Cough, Robin Hobb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know so many amazing female authors who are just, you know, not included in these things and are just ignored. And it matters. It matters so much because then you have people who haven't yet written books going into stores and thinking I'm not welcome here, like me in terms of science fiction. In, there's in um, Star Trek Next Generation there was a writer um, a name that came up in the credits on my favourite episodes um, and the name was Melinda Snodgrass and it meant the world to me that there was a female name in the list of writers on that show I cannot say how important that was to me and we need this we need to be shown that we're welcome and that is not happening. And, I, and even now, you know, even now saying this, I'm, I'm thinking, should I have said all of this? Should I, should I, am I going to get into trouble? Am I going to get backlash about this? And this is exactly part of the same structure of, you know, being kept quiet, being made to feel bad for an expressing an opinion um, that we are seeing played out time and time and time again online. Um, and, you know, the letters that I had back were very, were very like, there's no problem here. Calm down, dear. <laughs> then I had to go into hospital. <laughs> so, I yeah, nothing, nothing was pursued. And yeah, I don't know if there are different people in charge now or not. But it's one of the one of the things that I find very frustrating is that it it takes our energy. It takes our energy to say no, this isn't right. To deal with the backlash. To deal with the people going no, it doesn't matter. And to manage your emotional response to that when you feel that. You are not being represented. I don't want to spend this energy being furious about how unfair things are. I want to be writing books. I want my energy to go into my career because God knows we have to fight so hard to have a career as female authors when you don't have the same level playing field. And that makes me furious. This actually leads on quite nicely to, you know, some of the possible reasons for the gender imbalance and the lack of representation, um, because we've we've actually had an episode where we've discussed, um, you know, the, the possible bottlenecks, um, you know, from publishers not publishing enough women or not promoting enough female writers um, to the same extent as male writers, um, right down to, you know, a deeply ingrained bias on the parts of readers Um which you you know pops up time and time again in forums like you know fantasy faction like i mean i've just noticed that in their facebook group uh, it's one of my pet peeves really i notice that whenever someone asks for a book recommendation you get the same old rothfuss yeah. brett it's it happens every single time and if a woman pops up it's you know miles down the list and it's you know usually the same women and it, it's it's annoying because I know that that community considers itself progressive yeah. um, but they're not and uh, I just it's very difficult to work out you know where where this is coming from whether it's it starts from the very top or if we look we have to look at the grassroots and and see you know whether readers are simply responding to a bias that they, they've been handed down through the last 40 years I think that it's also symptomatic of the entirety of society I mean we we are talking about one expression of something which we see in not just multiple genres in terms of literature being displayed in Waterstones you know it's it's not just science fiction and fantasy where women are not displayed well right through to anything that is associated with women in society being downgraded in terms of status. 
and the the viewing of women as sexual objects the way that we are portrayed on television the way that we're portrayed in film television i think is actually getting much better in some respects there's a lot of really cool stuff that is being done in crime and in um science fiction and fantasy programs that are coming out now they there is some really great stuff and very exciting stuff happening but in terms of hollywood film it's shit you know there are there are really like five to ten films a year that I might be heartened by in terms of you know where how women are represented um, and the the kind of characters I mean how Hollywood women how Hollywood actresses cope with the dross that they are given to play it's so so incredible the the lack of decent roles that women have to play in these films I am so fucking bored of films about some kid getting some kind of decent relationship with his father or an adult man having some kind of improvement in his relationship with his father go get some fucking therapy and deal with your father issues stop fridging the women and give us something decent to to consume and to admire and that i think globally over our culture is a massive problem and we just see that kind of seeping through into our industry and our work the, another um thing that sprung to mind when you were talking about it sorry am i am i sounding too angry see even now i'm pleasing my own tone <laughs> i'm worried no, that i'm ranting too not much at all. not at all we like a bit of ranting <laughs> on uh, breaking the glass slipper uh, it's, it is a very fine line because we we've you know we obviously when we set it up we tried to to say that this podcast was not going to be you know angry angry um social justice warrior ranting um but it, you know it has to be said that um you know even though we want to approach the situation with a positive slant uh there is a lot of injustice out there and it can be quite difficult to keep one's temper when yeah about it. i mean I've, one thing i try to do is to remain positive I, I often try not to like just constantly rant online because um that would be awful for everybody else but one of the most positive things i have consumed in television in the last couple of weeks is the luke cage netflix series and i've seen various criticisms about it being slow in terms of um pacing and it is a very slow start but the thing Oh, my God. The thing that was just the most amazing thing ever was to have several complex, interesting, brilliant female characters, which were not there purely to be a trophy or a thing to be fought over or a victim. They were incredible. Um, And more than that, black women. And it was just, it's such a joy, that whole series. If you've been watching it and thinking, oh, this is really slow, stick with it because it is awesome. And not just in terms of representation. The, um, the characterization of several of the, the people involved, it, it's, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful. And that's what I'm hoping to see more of um, in terms of wider culture, that things, there is obviously change starting to happen. And there are lots of economic reasons behind this. I read something about um, a Hollywood executive talking about how they do keep churning out these same old films of uh, old guy who had some kind of violent career that has just left and now his daughter has been kidnapped, now his wife has been kidnapped and now he has to go and kill 20,000 people to get his wife and daughter back. You know, how many of those films have we seen? And they were talking about how having films which are principally led by men and have very poor roles for women are sold in very high numbers in the DVD market abroad um, in Russia and in China, I think, I think she said. And she was saying that economically, when you're producing a film, you have to look at the DVD sales as well as the cinema um, tickets and that it's difficult to sell films which are better Um, in terms of female characters and storylines and more original to overseas markets. So they are um, less adventurous at the Hollywood level. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, because I'm not involved in that industry. So I think there was lots of things. It it? would not be surprising (laughs) at all. It would not be surprising at all. Um, Something that uh, Lee Harris told me about a few years ago that he noticed was that when reading submissions, um, the standard of um, submissions from women was so much higher. um, And... Uh, he was talking about how he wondered if women feel that they have to kind of polish and make it really, really, really extra brilliant before they send it in, whereas the blokes just seem to send in anything that they thought, yeah, that's great, that's brilliant. Any old shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> because they're so used to everything being geared up around them. Um, and whereas as a woman, you, you have to be um, so much better to be considered uh, even able to be in the room. Um, cough, American presidential election cough. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think there are lots and lots and lots and lots of different variables involved. Um, and, in, you know, until we have a situation where you have no names on the front of books, or, you know, that it could be a completely blind trial, I don't think you will ever see any kind of fairness in the industry in any time soon. Um, You've quite neatly um, answered my last question. Um, I think the only thing that is left to discuss is what can we do to fight back? Yeah, what can we do to fight back? I think it's very easy and sometimes I do this myself I get really tired and I get really fed up and I think I'll oh, sod it I'm, I'm tired and I'm fed up and I don't want to keep talking about this anymore because I don't want to be on another panel which talks about women in science fiction I don't want to be on another panel which talks about kick-ass female characters in XYZ I'm bored I'm bored of that and yet it seems we can't get past that that we have to keep talking about this and keep calling it out and there was something that popped up recently that made me think, actually, this this is a good idea that I think is something new to me that I want to uh, encourage. And it's the idea of amplification um, in the highest levels of US government and the, um, the female advisors in the room with Obama at high level strategic meetings were obviously in the minority. And so they got together and agreed that if a woman raised a point that the other women in the room would repeat it and then repeat it again and repeat it again and describe it to that woman who raised it in the first place. And they called this amplification because men tend to A, ignore the contributions of women in these meetings. And also they tend to forget that they were there and they tend to claim responsibility and credit for these very good ideas and forget that the woman came up with them. And this technique of amplification stopped that from happening and had great success for them in well, terms of their careers. That's very interesting because uh, going back to what Lucy was saying about fantasy faction and getting the same old um, people up, I must admit that every time there's a request on fantasy faction for a good book to read, I always quote Jen Williams's Copper Cat trilogy. And I find that there's no discussion in which I can't say, oh, Jen Williams, everybody, you should go read her. <laughs> so I hope that I'm doing a bit of amplification for her as well. Well, yeah. Jen is one of the only names that ever comes up, actually, in, in um, you know, of course, you get Robin Hobb, um, you know, and any of the writers who've been writing for more than 20 years, which seems the prerequisite these days. Um, but yeah, it's it's very, very rare to see kind of anyone else. And the crazy thing is, there's, you know, the, the market at the moment is, is full of fantastic stories by very talented women and it's just bizarre that they don't get mentioned uh, and I, I think it simply must be the fact that they're just they don't sell as many copies because they're not as promote not as well promoted so actually it sounds very interesting that we could possibly take that the you know the theory of amplification and, and apply it uh, to you know the literary community the, the SSF community and, and kind of see how it um, you know see how it affects uh, because it's 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 and obviously at the end of the day it's sales but we it's it's talking it's actually people need to to talk about women and they need to women need to be making it onto most anticipated lists they need to yes. be making it into you know awards we have seen some you know quite surprising um awards you know results this year which is very very welcome um but still you know this needs to kind of bleed through into sales so women can actually you know afford to keep writing and doing what they love best yeah you know, and i is... think there's there's a, a, a we're seeing a really positive shift in terms of kind of like award level awareness but i find it really really fascinating that as soon as women and people of color had any kind of success at that level then bing you get the sad puppies and bing you get the rabid puppies you know there was a, a graph I saw where it was something like every time you get higher than 30% in terms of nominations or nominees where um, that 30% is women or people of color you get a backlash and um, you yeah, know whether we are going to see those strides that have been that we've we've seen taken in terms of the winners of the things like the Hugos and, and things like that who have done, who have won despite 
the awfulness that has been happening in that arena, whether that can spread out to the, the wider mass public when somebody goes into a shop, do they pick up a book and not even care what the name is in the cover? I was signing a book in a shop. It wasn't an event. I was just signing stock um, because they'd sold through the signed stock. And there was a guy buying other books at the counter and the woman behind the counter had one of my books there and said, oh, you know, I think you should try this judging by what you've got there. You'll really enjoy it. And he looked at it and he said, I don't read books written by women. He actually said that to her. And there was this awful pause. And he said, I suppose I sound like a real bigot saying that, don't I? But I won't read it. Yes. It's written by a woman. And at the time, I, I've thought about that so many times. And I was like, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I stand up and tear a new one in this guy? But I was so shocked. It's almost like, you know, when somebody gropes you on public transport, there's you just freeze. And there's this shock of, is this actually happening? Is this happening to me right now? Am I here is, is that man really saying that? Are these people real? And yeah, they are. It, it's when that kind of attitude just isn't there anymore is, is what I'm kind of heading towards, or what I'm hoping for, that I hope that we're heading towards. But I think we're a hell of a long way off from that. I think we're a hell of a long way off, but at least, you know, we're beginning to talk about it. I think that's the only thing we can do is to continue to talk about it, continue to try and, um, you know, open people up to the possibility that women are really great and <laughs> they can do, you know, just as much as men and they're in fact better. Uh, you know, they can produce, you know, better fiction. We don't have to have all of this... Um, um, you know many many articles like you know the 10 best female writers you're like why can't we just have the 10 best writers yep yeah I completely agree and that was one of the things that um, Waterstones kind of knee-jerked after we wrote the letters um, where they, they had a couple of places where they'd kind of put up a stand saying women in science fiction and we were like no no can you just include us with everybody else please it was yeah, as soon so as you put that distinction in it's that separation why why should we be separated it's it's completely bizarre you know i yeah. just think it's it's an old uh, something that's you know uh, it doesn't really belong in the 21st century um, no and yet you know there are so many things which are hung over from the past you know it's not that many generations ago where we had no voice and you know people are raised in environments influenced by their parents of their parents of their parents and you know there there are so many things so many ugly things which are being exposed in our society today which i think really are rooted from hundreds of years ago that just has not been worked out of the societal level psyche um, yes absolutely now on a break in the glass slipper first we are joined by peter newman emmon's husband and recent winner of a david gemmel award for his novel the vagrant hello peter Hello. Hey, yeah. Uh, and as pleased as we are for you and wish to congratulate you on your award, you're not actually here to talk about that for at the moment. You're here because you are one half of the Tea and Jeopardy team. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the format, Tea and Jeopardy is essentially a tea party hosted by Miss Emma Newman, who is ably assisted by her butler, Latimer. Each episode, a new person leaves their calling card, which is examined in detail, and then the new guest is admitted. Each guest is asked to bring with them a curio to share and discuss. Then what follows is a very civilised discussion over tea and various types of cake. After that, the guests bid farewell and often encounter some peril on the way home. So, Peter and Emma, talk us through some of the guests you've had on your show. Uh, we've had 60 guests now. Yeah, thereabouts, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the very first guest we had was Chuck Wendig, who's a really great first guest to have. <laughs> he was really He really got into it instantly and it was great and... When I think back to that episode, I haven't listened to it since then, but we hadn't refined the format or anything. Um, so people that kind of uh, stand out for me, there's Shauna Maguire, Nora Jemison, And that was really funny when um, the convers- when I started the conversation, like the um, interview section, which is obviously recorded separately to the rest of the show. I had my first genuine um, kind of tongue-tied fangirl moment. <laughs> It was really awkward. I felt like such a dweeb. It was really terrible. So I, I just had to say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just a massive fan. <laughs> and then I could actually carry on with the interview. That was my worst case of fangirling with uh, with Nora. Gail Carragher, um, Joe Abercrombie, Pat Rothfuss, um, Aliette de Baudard. So, yeah, those are the ones that kind of stand out for me. Yeah, yeah I case. think Mike Cole probably deserves an honourable mention. Oh, Mike Cole. Being fabulous. I, I love Mike Cole so much. He's such such a lovely guy, and his uh, his episode was great. 
So you haven't had China Mabel on yet, because uh, I know you and Paul Cornell uh, back in the early days were, uh, were having a chat. I'm laughing about that because I've been threatened with that so many times by um, Paul Cornell, who was another guest who knows him uh, and he knows of my epic level 20 crush on him. And uh, we've always joked that I wouldn't be able to have him as a guest because I'd mostly just be going <laughs> and not actually be able to string a word together. So we can look forward to an episode of China and Latimer the butler taking over to uh, ask him questions <laughs> while Miss Emma pours the tea and uh, gushes in the corner. Yeah, maybe, maybe that would be the solution. Because yeah. <laughs> you don't just have writers on, do you? You've got, um, I know you've had an agent and you've obviously had the excellent Fessa Elemental, um, a rap art, and sorry, gentleman rap artist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've had um, agents and editors and illustrators. I mean, generally speaking, anyone who is cool and involved in some creative industry in some way yeah. uh, can get involved. Yeah, that's that's really the only prerequisite, really, is that it is somebody who is involved with something creative. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy, actually, is uh, are the episodes where I can talk to somebody who's in a completely different discipline to my own. So Sarah McIntyre um, is a really good example of that. And Emma Vicelli. Um, mm. And Emma Vicelli is a really, really impressive comic book artist um, and um, graphic novel um, illustrator. And uh, she's an absolute top a plus plus person um and also incredibly talented in a sphere that i have no personal experience with whatsoever so it's really enjoyable from that perspective to say just you know how do you do this <laughs> it's, it's really nice so how did you come up with the idea because it's obviously a very unique kind of concept um and like you say you've obviously developed the structure over time but what made you come up with the idea initially uh well the central the the reason behind the the podcast full stop um, whereas a few years ago um, I was thinking about kind of podcasts that were out there and I, I read um, an article that was talking about how the very small number of uh, female-led podcasts that were out there at the time and hi, hey look it's the same pattern in podcasting that we see in every other sphere of human society and this really made me angry and I thought well how do I um, combat that how do we make it more balanced and uh, the thing that just kept coming back to my mind was well if there aren't enough female voices then you have to make your voice go out there and so that was the initial idea and then I came I think I thought about that on a trip back from Worldcon and then I came home and said to Pete hey there's this thing and I'm really angry about it and I think this is what I have to do about it <laughs> and so then we went to a coffee shop and started brainstorming didn't we yeah and one of the things there's a lot of podcasts out there that are very kind of uh, educational or intellectual uh, discussing weighty issues in a weighty manner yeah uh, and just totally straight there's there's yeah. no uh, i mean you know sometimes people will say something funny but it is um a straight discussion mm. no other elements whatsoever um and obviously there's a long history of audio theater which is just not not incorporated in the, the vast majority of podcasts and I think when we were talking about it we didn't feel necessarily we could add a lot to the intellectual weightiness no. of podcasting <laughs> so we thought well okay let's do something silly instead <laughs> yeah because you know what what else can you add when there are so many podcast casts out there in science fiction and fantasy it, it's just like well yeah well I think too and I was instantly bored by that concept even if it was what I thought too um, and I thought that actually there's so much seriousness and actually the world is so awful. Mm. Don't we need something which has some lightness and some whimsy and something which is a kind of more old fashioned entertaining, um, if that makes sense. So oh, absolutely. And it is we, highly entertaining. <laughs> the other thing that um, we we had quite long discussions about, I mean, one of the reasons it's called Tea and Jeopardy is because we were brainstorming off the phrase tea and sympathy because I'm obviously a, a great drinker of tea and I liked the idea of it being something like where you sit down with a friend and have a cup of tea together. That was like the, the first springboard off that idea. Um, and so we were just literally kind of playing around with words that could replace sympathy and then Jeopardy came up. Um, and I've always had a delight in the expression on like DVD boxes where it says like a warning contains mild peril. Oh, yes. <laughs> just makes me laugh. And so I was thinking, well, what what is mild peril and how can we incorporate this into the podcast? Um, and then in terms of Latimer, yeah, yeah, initially initially he was just there to kind of be the butler and to frame the tea and cake device. But then uh, he, he served a very important purpose, which I'll let you 
So one of the the things that was interesting in the, in the very early conception of the show was that uh, Emma was going to be responsible for the peril. Yeah, I was going to be evil. And <laughs> the thing is, is when it kind of started getting to crunch time, Emma was sort of saying, "Well, I, I don't know if I can." I don't know if I'm ready to be evil. <laughs> and also it's difficult when you're a real person who's then going to meet people at conventions and things. It's like, hang on, weren't you the one that tried to push me off that cliff? You know, yeah. it's not necessarily <laughs> going to work well on panels. So um, the nice thing with Latimer is we c- Latimer can be as horrible as we need him to be. I yeah. guess he's a little bit like a sort of um, uh, Batman-esque thing, you know. He can he can be the hero you deserve. Oh, um, he's not a hero. Well, no, all right, the villain you deserve then. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, we, he can be as horrible as we need him to be, but actually, I mean, I still don't get mugged at conventions, so it's it's good. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about girl crushes, I do have a bit of a girl crush on Latimer. Um, that is just... I mean, <laughs> you're a nice so guy, Pete, but <laughs> Latimer is a step up, I'm I tell amazed. you. <laughs> He's so awful. <laughs> I know, but, but you, you know, know. I had a huge, massive crush on Fisk from um, Daredevil on Netflix, so, you know, I can't really talk. <laughs> Well, I grew up in the era of Alan Rickman as the best sheriff of Nottingham ever, so I've always had that. Ah, yeah, 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 fair. All right. So do you um, tend to invite people on, or do you find that people send in their own calling cards and ask to be on it these days? Or is it a bit of a mixture? Well, we we tend to invite people. A lot of it has come from going to conventions and meeting people. Um, And because of the kind of show that it is, you kind of have to be confident that the person coming onto the show can handle the weird bits of it Mm. um and that it's someone that i'll feel comfortable talking to we have a a strict policy of um gender um parity so when we're planning our guests it's always one male one female will always um so yeah it started off where it was just you know who have we met at conventions mostly it was like a list of who did i get really drunk with and have a really good laugh with at a convention that i would feel confident to interview because I'm I'm really not socially confident at all and I get very anxious and it was a way to um, kind of get around that um, but as the show became more successful more and more people have been asking to come on to it um, and you know sometimes it's like yes great um, but a lot of the time we've already got people lined up and it's also to do with you know oh well we've had loads of authors let's have an illustrator or let's try and find mm. somebody else from a different you know aspect of the creative arts um, so we're all there are lots of different factors that are, that are coming into play when we we form our guest list it's quite interesting actually there's a couple of people that we asked to come on the show and they didn't feel confident enough you know that they they said oh i i've listened to the the episodes and everyone's always so funny on it and i don't think i can <laughs> yeah um, and they um, end up being some of the funniest guests on yeah. the show um one of my favorite uh moments of my entire life actually not just regarding T and Jeopardy was that um, I've been a massive Gail Carragher fan for years um, and then uh, started going to conventions you know I took all the books I own like five books and asked her very nervously to sign them and then a couple of years um, into doing T and Jeopardy um, we were at a convention uh, at the same time and uh, she kind of shouted across the lobby oh T and Jeopardy I love T and Jeopardy I'd love to be on that show and I was like oh my god (laughs) And I actually was on my way to a panel and I went into the panel and I was like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what just happened. And I was so excited. <laughs> so that's how Gail Carragher came on the show. <laughs> so you must be quite surprised at how popular it's become because I remember that you did a, a special event at one of the fantasy cons I went to, which is where I've, I first discovered it myself and, uh, and saw Latimer the butler. And I was quite impressed, Pete Newman, that you managed to be Latimer pretty much all the way out of the convention room and all the way down the hall. It was, it was very good staying in character. Well... But, Thank you. I think one of the things, in a way, is people take it very seriously. You know, we we often get people talking about stuff going on in the show, because obviously sometimes I'm in the show too as me. Um, and there was, I think, one of the Christmas editions where I was kind of locked in the basement, and you know, <laughs> will I? And people would say like, "Did you get out?" They'd tweet me, "Did you get out okay on Christmas morning yeah. or not?" And um, people talk about the chickens like they they think that there are chickens living in our house. And obviously everyone shares it as like the shared joke. But sometimes people will say things and it's like, wow, this is this is a real proper thing in your imagination. And that's awesome. And we don't want to break that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's always very difficult if I was at a convention and I was jumping between the two. I think it's hard to know what's what. And I think keeping that really clean divide is good. Um, 
It's funny. It's funny at the convention shows as well. I mean, I found those horrifically stressful <laughs> and awful, but you know, kind of fun when it was over. But um, it's really interesting watching people interact with Latimer. Like they're they're kind of slightly fearful of him, and there are some people who like try and go over and bait him to see what he'll do. And yeah. it was it's quite funny. Um, one of the we had uh, Juliet Mushins on as a guest, and um, yeah, she she definitely did some Latimer baiting at uh, the last <laughs> fantasy con. <laughs> But, and also the other thing is, is that, of course, Latimer isn't that nice to people. He's a bit down his nose and a bit, you know, um, superior at times. And yet the thing that really surprised me, actually, is that the audience seemed to love it. They quite like being kind of told what to do or given a bit of a oh dear kind of look and that kind of business. It's like kind of enjoy the uh, the evil on some level. Yeah, I think also because they know it's not real. Yeah. You know, if you were a real person, well, if you were a real person really doing that, I'd slap you. But, <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> oh, here comes the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you were really that much of an asshole, that, that would, would not stand in real life. I think it's the fantasy aspect of it and and that it kind of taps into so many tropes that you know we deliberately play with the um the kind of the anglophile view yeah. of of kind of england where it is butlers and tea and cake and that we have this neat table with crisp white linen and um i think people like that kind of romanticism almost and the butler being you know horrible and slightly disdainful is something that we see again and again yeah, and again it's, and it's, it's very established yeah isn't it, exactly thing. Well, i, I mean, think as well with the live shows there's a bit of sort of panto yeah, really uh, in in that as well um and it's what's really nice actually is not only that the the audience are always fabulous and really because we always get the audience to do very very silly things at the live shows as you know if you've been there um but also that the the guests are always really up for it because mm. we often ask them to do things that are potentially quite embarrassing um but and, they've always been very kind of game. But that's that is a very important rule in Tea and Jeopardy that there is there is as much humor as we can put into it but it's never at the expense of the guest that that is a very strict line that we maintain it has to be at my expense or pete's expense or latimer's Hmm. um or you know some politician that's pissed me off (laughs) which is like all of them but yeah it's it's very um important that we we never ridicule the guest um but that being said sometimes we ask them to do silly things so with brandon sanderson at the last live event Hmm. um we asked him to role play not being able to let go of a wooden shield and that he was arguing that he's the best person and he should have it and that's quite a big ask for somebody to do on a stage in front of people like like a performance yeah and he was brilliant yeah he he really went for it he was really up for it and it was great well i think like you said there's a very big difference for people going on as brendan sanson the writer and you guys stepping up there as miss newman and latimer because you get to put on your fabulous outfits and i know i've (laughs) seen pete as in his his latimer outfit and it's almost like putting it on and putting on a, an outer shell and like you say you can't be held responsible for what you say because you are Miss Newman and Latimer whereas poor old Brandon Sanderson will be up there as Brandon Sanderson as the one who wouldn't let go of the shield poor thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it's interesting you say that because I don't see um the person I am on Tea and Jeopardy as being different from who I am it's just kind of like my the the best the most polite version of myself I don't swear as much as I would like <laughs> I would swear you know really really badly all the time because I love swearing and that's the only thing I dial down for the show um so I don't I when I like wear clothes the clothes that I wear at conventions and when doing tea in jeopardy um I see that as like a a public facing like self um whereas Latimer is a completely fictional character yeah. and is is totally divorced from from Pete there's that word again uh, divorced coming up a scary amount actually (laughs) so if you were invited to a tea party and had to bring a curio of your own what would you bring besides the singing chickens obviously which you brought for uh, tea at Professor Elemental's mansion is there anything else you would bring what would Latimer bring oh that's a really good question well I don't think Latimer would ever be a guest because that's not appropriate so I I suspect I suspect that would never come up for him (laughs) you might feel that's me just like dodging the question (laughs) Um, if I was, if I was a guest on Tea and Jeopardy, uh, and I was trying to think if I actually brought a curio, you must have done. You must have done. We've just forgotten. Um, but it, but in terms of what would I bring, you know, off the top of my head now, um, I've got a totem pole, and uh, when we we used to live um, just outside of Watford, and when we moved down to Somerset, uh, I I'd lived in that area, not Somerset, but Watford. Uh, 
you know, I'd grown up around there and I'd lived in and around London my whole life. So I was, we were moving a long way away from a lot of friends and family and things. And um, some of my closest friends uh, made a totem pole for me. And the totem pole, each block of the totem pole, a different one of them made. Um, and so it's kind of a way to, it, so it sits in my writing room and it's a way to kind of, I don't know, kind of reminds me of them when I look at it and reminds me to call them if it's been too long and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, some of my friends are, you know, quite skilled uh, at carving things and that kind of business, but quite a few of them really aren't. And, and they, they definitely went out of their comfort zone for it. And it's a lovely thing. And they all did a, a sort of superb job. So, yeah, that's the curio that I would bring. Uh, as for, there are there are a few options. I've been given a knitted face hugger um, as a, a birthday present, which I'm looking at right now, going, yeah, that's quite an awesome curio actually, um, by the lovely Toria. Um, but I think what I would probably bring is a um, lighthouse made of serpentine stone from Land's End, which is a very particular, um, a very particular look to it. Um, you can really see that it's right from that small geographical area of Cornwall and the reason it's important to me is that it belonged to my late grandfather and it was the only thing of his that I kept from his house after he died and it was just there all of my childhood holding open the front room door that's all it did um, but he bought it from Land's End um, and I was born in Cornwall and grew up in Cornwall and it's kind of what I consider to be my spiritual home and I like to look at it. It's on my desk right now. I like to look at it to remind me of my grandfather, but also that it is a piece of what I consider like my homeland. It's like my, it's a physical thing from the earth there, from the ground, um, which is very important to me. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Emma Newman and Peter Newman, for talking to us today. And thank you to our audience for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. We'll see you the next time. <laughs>